Okay. Blast off. So, welcome to another P- episode of PhD um, We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And if I sound a little bit flustered, it's because my usual STEM side person is not here. It's just me, Dr. Zainya, representing the humanities. Um, Dr. Liz Wayne, unfortunately, was too busy to be with us today because she's uh, preparing for a major presentation later this month. So I'm taking over, but we do have a very special guest today, Dr. Nadia Cherniak. Hi, and I'm here representing the social sciences. So hopefully some of the sciences will be uh-huh. represented nonetheless. Be pacified by your inclusion. So for our, our newer listeners may not recognize Nadia, but our older listeners might. Um, a couple years ago, we had an episode called Academic Anxiety, where uh, me, Nadia, and Liz all talked about the academic job market from all our different perspectives, from humanities, social sciences, and and STEM. And so this is an update. Uh, we thought we know that a lot of people, of course, are listening from different uh, stages in their academic careers. And quite a few people, of course, are like either looking to the market or going to be on the market. And so we thought it'd be really great to have an update from Nadia because she's awesome and she has uh, great research to share with us. But also what has the trajectory of her career looked like since graduating from Cornell, Cornell uh, doing her fantastic work? on childhood morality. I got that right, right? Yes, yes. Thanks, Zine. <laughs> childhood morality, kind of? Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, Nadi, how about you introduce yourself? Sure. Maybe do a little summary of what happened to you post-PhD, Cornell. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I can't believe it's been a couple years. I realized that that was right, but I thought for sure that you were wrong about how long it's been since I was last on the podcast. But Um, So I am a cognitive developmentalist, which means that I study the development of how we think about the world. I focus specifically on the early years because that's when the majority of development happens. But the things I think about are things like how we think about others' minds, how we acquire basic concepts and categories about the world, and yes, childhood morality, so how we develop an understanding of our moral and social world and concepts of fairness and equality and things like that. Um, and I am currently a postdoctoral researcher at Boston University and Boston College. I think the last time you guys had me on the podcast, I was still a postdoctoral researcher back then. Um, so it's been a couple years since, and we had talked last time. It was just the beginning, I think, of my trajectory of being on the market and starting the whole anxious um, and hectic journey that it was. I am happy to report that it did result in an academic job that I ended up taking. So there is, yes, yes. (laughs) So there are at least one happy story. Um, I know that it it was, it's, it's been a long and not so easy process. And I know lots of people are still in that process as well. So I want to be mindful of that. Yeah, I think it's, so Nadia is a brilliant researcher and she's like had like, she did fantastic at Cornell. She had publications that got a lot of press, including in the mainstream press. Like I actually brought you up at this cottage weekend I had um, <laughs> where I got tons of mosquito bites. But I was like, I have a friend who um, had this a study that you may have seen in the news, which was about how, and the way that I described it, which is hopefully not too inaccurate, um, is that when given uh, the option to choose for themselves, children are... Uh, more likely to choose the, what we consider the moral option. Yeah, that's like that's that. that's pretty close. Like, um, but I'm I'm very flattered that you you brought my my study up in casual conversation. 
Um, yeah, so that study was looking at the benefits of choice, which I'm was very proud of my friends. <laughs> Thank you, Zine. Um, so I, yeah, so that study was looking at uh, the benefits of choice specifically in the moral domain. So it was looking to see whether choice or a lack of choice would be more beneficial to children's social development. And it was finding that if you give children choices um, or you force them to do something, they tend to do the right thing either way, but it's only the kids who were initially given choice that kind of persist in that behavior later on. Presumably because when you have choice, you can kind of learn something critical about yourself and you end up um, you end up inferring something about your preferences or your abilities or something like that. Mm -hmm. Which I think is the, of course, the implications of that are absolutely fascinating. Um, so, of course, Nadia did fantastic work back at Cornell. Since then, she's had a number of um, really prestigious postdocs at quite a few different institutions around the New England area. And I know <laughs> she was juggling a lot of that. Um, do you like to talk maybe about something of the process of applying for the different postdocs and what has juggling these different temporary positions been like before getting to the tenure track job, which is, of course, one thing we really try to emphasize on the podcast is demystify the tenure track job as some sort of, you know, merit meritocratic goal that people, if you're just good enough and you just hope hard enough, you'll get. Um, and of course, that's not the case for so many people. And so on the one hand, we're celebrating Nadia and Nadia's fantastic, but uh, the struggle has also been real. Maybe it's maybe. The yeah, no, it. absolutely. I mean, I think um, the last time I was on the podcast, I was struggling largely because I had no idea how to get a postdoc. I just didn't, it wasn't something that I was really, I mean, I knew that you could kind of um, search for openings and apply, but if you're geographically limited in any way, which I was at the time, um, that severely limits the amount of stuff that you can apply to. And I just didn't understand the timeline of it at all. There was just a lot that I was totally, totally clueless about. So I ended up doing a very kind of helter-skelter thing where I had applied for a grant and it didn't get funded, which meant that I was really nervous about um, not having any kind of profession or job in academia, which if you have enough of a gap, at least in my field, starts to look suspicious. Um, so I started, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there was that kind of pressure. So I remember I was just, um, a little haphazard about it. And I had emailed people. I know my graduate advisor helped immensely with putting me in touch with, um, someone that I ended up doing a postdoc with. And then someone else I had asked for help had put me in touch with a couple of other people. And between all of that, I had patched together, two people who were kind enough to kind of give me half-time funding. So I had two of these um, postdocs. One was at Harvard and one was at Brown. And so I was commuting two days a week to one, two days a week to the other and kind of flexible or working from home on my fifth day. So it was a little bit of... Um, uh, God, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can see it as like, in some sense it was absurd. In another sense, I was just so fortunate that these people happened to have funding at the right time, despite the fact that's that I, true, that's true. I never actually applied in the proper uh, ways. And so that was good for a year. Um, and then during that year, I was able to kind of buy myself time to apply for grants and things like that. And then I ended up getting um, some of the stuff that I had applied for, which meant that I was able to actually have some job security for over the next uh, three years after that. So it ended up um, pretty well, but there was a lot of um, nerves and a lot of uncertainty in the process. 
Thank you, Nadia, for sharing that. I remember like just talking to Nadia casually about these things and yeah, just the, the idea of like you guys, you having to commute back and forth. And I started right. listening, I think, to PhD was possibly during one of my commutes. And now I listen to it on my runs because I am happy to report that I no longer have a commute. So I was going to say that um, one thing Nadia and I talked about more recently when we were catching up just as friends, um, when she told me the fantastic news was how we we're talking about um, collateral damage with this decay of the contemporary neoliberal institution and with the dubious status of our various funding agencies in different disciplines, uh, which is so, yeah, collateral damage was sort of a, a term that really stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that's very, uh, weighing a lot on my mind as well, since, as I mentioned to Nadia before recording, uh, this summer I'm gearing up to go on the market. My postdoc will be ending uh, in 2018, and so the market will be opening up in the fall of 2017. Typically in English, this means that the, our job list goes live uh, about mid-September, I believe, like September 10th or 12th or about then. And what does the timeline look like for you? So you mentioned that your postdoc is ending, So and you mentioned when the job ads go up, but between the job ad and when you might hear back and when you might actually potentially accept the job, what does that look like? I think it's definitely sort of weird and messy and fuzzy in the ways that Nadia also alluded to. So the job list is supposed to go live mid-September, but things since things have been fairly decentralized now, even though there is an official job list in literature, uh, not all the jobs go live all at once. People start um, adding to jobs throughout the fall and even into the spring semester. So even so it just becomes an ongoing process that it's basically like a whole other job of applying to jobs as well as other postdocs, as well as other forms of funding, because you have absolutely no idea what you're going to end up with and what that looks like. Even though the typical timeline is supposed to, a clean timeline is supposed to look like something like the job list goes live, you pl apply through uh, the beginning of the fall, maybe do Skype interviews um, midway through, and then you're supposed to have uh, in-person interviews at the Modern Language Institution, and then you're supposed to hear about campus visits. But really, because everything is unfolding very unevenly, this means continue, the continual process of applying to jobs, which means researching departments, researching institutions, um, fine-tuning cover letters to particular institutions, giving them, being able to spit out your project in one pages versus two pages versus a paragraph because people ask for different lengths of all the basic documents which have to do with your research versus your teaching. Some might want teaching portfolios that cover different things. Some might want you to um, give some uh, sample syllabi of the type of classes you'll need. So there is also like not a set um, standard yeah. for the materials that are needed. You sort of have to, yeah continually modify to the needs of institution as well as like uh, play, be able to play with the lengths of your different materials and still somehow keep them effective as, and you're doing this as you're doing your usual work as well. I see. Nadia? Yeah. And I was going to ask um, what the costs involved are. So is there a centralized system that can send out some of these materials for you, or do you have to pay to, um, uh, email ship with these materials and handle your recommenders? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, Interfolio is the system that we use and it costs money. So it's not just about putting all the work into applying, but it 
costs money to send all your applications. And it actually, uh, um, in my experience with Interfolio, it costs money for every single referee letter that you send. And yes. different applications ask for different numbers of letters at different times. So that means like a lot of money before you even know if you're ever going to hear back from these places. Another thing to sort of emphasize, even though on our end as the job applicants, there's a lot of red tape to go through. It's actually the norm to never hear back from a, from a position if they're not interested in you. Yes, I would say that's like, the norm for us as well. I would say that's the norm for us as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so we also use Interfolio. Yeah. And so my memory of that is that it's about $6 for each time you send out a recommendation. And so for each application, you might have three to four recommend yes. recommenders, right? Big sigh. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the costs definitely add up. And that's just the initial cost because this doesn't also factor in, say, the cost of like eventually if you have an in-person interview as is the, the norm in my field, like the cost of flying out there, the cost of attending the conference. Uh, the, there's so many myriad costs that also end up accruing the further on you get in the, into the process. And there's typically no form of reimbursement until you get to the campus visit stage in which they will pay for your transportation. However, even then I've heard of friends that, that the, the, Covering the cost of transportation sometimes means that they expect the applicant to foot the bill and then you are reimbursed later. So that also means that you should have an appropriate credit card set up in advance that has enough leeway to accommodate for however many jobs you need to go to that may require you to be reimbursed at an indefinite time later. Yes, yes, I also found that and that was tough. And I have to say, there's nothing worse than getting a rejection, but still having to hunt down a reimbursement check <laughs> for months and months afterwards, because people need <laughs> paperwork. <laughs> so yeah, I can definitely, oh, well, yes, I can goes. definitely add that to the, <laughs> the job market scars. Uh, I think that our listeners may have also seen, I think it was an article on Medium or something like that, where this uh, a guy in STEM, and I want to emphasize, like this is the experience I think of a guy who is white, straight, and cisgender in STEM who talked very frankly about collecting statistics about his time in the job market, which was really honest and it was I really appreciated the transparency. But he talked about applying to I think a hundred or hundred fifty jobs in two years. Wow! Um, and it was really great for him to do breakdowns of like how he got interviews and things like that. That being said, when I shared it, it was so interesting to see friends from all disciplines that were not that discipline who were like, this looks easy. Like he did 100 or 150 in two years. Friends have done easily 100 over 150 in one year and never heard back from anywhere. Wow. So okay. like he had a pretty good return rate, I feel like, because he ended up having like a couple dozen interviews, which is not typical in a lot, quite a lot of fields. I even had a friend who I think she's, she's tenure track now and in economics, she posted when I she commented when I posted that that she was applying to over 100 jobs jobs a week a week so wow okay. on the one hand it was really fantastic that he was so transparent about what his process was like but it sort of just underscores how different it could be from between different fields and uh, especially with the, my friends who were responding giving their own experience uh, not just in terms of field but what it's like to be a woman a woman of color or um other people who may not have the same sort of personal or institutional privileges that this guy had. 
And what would you say those personal institutional privileges um, were in terms of how they affected him? So what what uh, was it that allowed him to apply to fewer jobs? Uh, the problem is like it's also been a couple of months since I read the piece, so I'm sort of hesitant to to name them specifically because I don't want to misrepresent his experience. Sure. Uh, but I feel like I think that he may have mentioned that he was married possibly to a non-academic and uh, as we know there's quite a yeah. few studies done about the sort of unequal labor that goes goes on in terms of who looks after the home who looks after the children if any or aging parents or things like that that would allow some people to put more focus on their research I think that definitely I think he mentioned like something about mentors and different types of institutional support which even allowed him to build up his uh, CEV substantially between those two years. That's definitely something I've been thinking about in my own postdoc experience about that. It's also about a certain amount of luck in terms of the connections you make that allows your CV to get that much stronger. Um, right. Which it's, I think becomes sort of sort, sort, sort of more nebulous as well. Right. It's definitely a little bit of a cycle. Once you have that initial job security, then you have it frees you up and it frees up your time in a lot of ways, and then you can apply to fewer and fewer positions because you know that you might have, you know, an extra two years of postdoc funding or something like that. It's really difficult in the academy to talk about anything that might construe quote unquote failure, which is actually the majority of the reality of our professional experiences. So to have them lay bare those figures was useful, I think. I mean, definitely. It's, um, I would say for every, you know, 20 or 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 job applications, you get one interview. And then for every four or five interviews, you might get one offer if that, right? So for sure, I, I think the figures mm -hmm. are definitely probably different for me than it, they might have been for him. But def the, the um, idea that the <laughs> hit rate is so incredibly low is the same. Mm -hmm. I think he... In the end, he was also lucky enough that he had a number of competing job offers, which I feel is very anomalous in my field. Like you're sort of lucky to get one. Yes. And I think different advisors definitely have different, um, I guess, uh, philosophies. So they might advise their students differently for whether you apply to each and every single job that you might even be remotely qualified for just so you can have competing offers versus you really want to just concentrate on specific types of jobs and you want to... Um, respect and appreciate your geographical or whatever other kind of limitations that you might have or not. And I think people are advised very, very differently. In my experience, people have vastly, vastly different philosophies, even within the same department or institution. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm definitely not looking forward to it. I think the, the emotional toll of it all is also quite exhausting. And so Preparing to go through that again is not something I look forward to. Yeah. Again, I've been getting a lot of the questions from people close to me who are not in academia who are asking the usual, oh, so what school would you want to end up at? <laughs> right, know, that eternal questioner. Why don't you send your... Country? Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, you know, I don't even know what, where, how many job positions there will be or where they'll be. So, or why don't you send your resume to, to Stanford? Don't you like California? Just send your resume to Stanford. I'm sure, I'm sure they would love to see your resume. Oh yes, I, yes, I have gotten something like that from a very well-intentioned distant relative. Like, don't don't you think Columbia would be a good university to, to work <laughs> at? 
Um, I'm sure they'd love to have you. <laughs> Actually, Nadia, don't forget if I told you, even one of our mutual friends, <laughs> Jose. Um, <laughs> Hi, Jose. I was messaging with him a couple weeks ago, and he was, he's, yes, and he said something like, oh, Zion, you should, you know, get a job around in the, at a university in the Boston area. Any institution there would be lucky to have you. And I was like, well, Jose, it's really nice of you to think that. <laughs> It doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, I'm sure he's yes, there right. Are a lot of very fine, excellent institutions there. As someone based yeah. on the Boston area, I'm sure I and and just going to appoint myself as a representative of the Boston area. I'm sure we'd welcome you with open arms. But I do uh, I do appreciate that that's not exactly how the job market works. So on the one hand, like I really appreciated Jose's comments, and of course the comments of those. Friends are not in academia. Jose is in academia, so he should know better. <laughs> but uh, who really have that type of faith in all of us who are on the market because there are so many of us who do fantastic work, who are really hardworking, who are great teachers, who are great researchers. But eventually it, it sort of becomes very bittersweet because you know that so many of those things are not out of your control. Yeah, definitely. That's right. Not in your control, rather. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So big sigh. Yeah, I mean, I have to say there's really nothing. Could you give any advice, Nadia? Um, yeah, so one thing I was going to just mention before I start giving advice um, is that I really wanted to be kind of positive on this podcast, but I have to say there's there's not that much positive I could say about the process of the job market itself. I mean, it's it's pretty universally horrible for, with um, you know, regardless of who you speak to or which field or um, what stage they, they're at or anything like that. So... I would say my first piece of advice given that is to just prepare yourself for that. Just know that it will be riddled with a lot of uncertainty and know that the hit rate is incredibly low and that there's nothing um, there's nothing personal about that. That's kind of the way it is. So I think the difference between how I felt in my first two years and my second two years on the job market were um, immensely different because I knew what to expect more or less. Right. And I knew that it wasn't personal. I had talked to other people who had experienced the same thing. And I knew that this was pretty much the normal process. I knew to block off the times between October and, say, March to allow myself to feel, you know, out of control and a little depressed about it, but know that this was part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the first thing. But beyond that, I wish I could give more specific advice. I mean, it's really been, it's such a, um, I, it's funny, I was talking to a friend recently about it, and I wish I could say that the job that I ended up getting was the job where I learned all of these great lessons, and I finally kind of put them all together and created the best possible job talk that I could have and had the best interview ever. But I really don't feel that way. I feel like it was all kind of a, a little bit you kind of throw a lot of darts and see which one sticks and that one happened to stick that time. And mm -hmm. I think that, of course, you're trying the whole time and you're always trying to improve. But I couldn't tell you that that happened to be my best interview or that this was the time that I really knew that I nailed it. I think it's all just comes down to you do your absolute best and then you leave it to um, whatever mysterious political forces are that that be in your interview so are they looking for someone in your specific area have they hired someone recently would your skill set be overlapping or complementary um, who are the powerful people and are they the ones on the search committee and are they the ones deciding the direction of which uh, 
the research that the department's going to um, go and maybe where's the funding coming for that position and who is in charge of that. And I mean, there's just so much there. Um, and also just how does it look for them to hire you? So are they trying to fulfill some kind of mission and would you be helping to fill that gap or um, are you kind of extraneous to them? How much uh, cost is your research? So some of the schools that I think are super, super research intensive, try not to consider the cost of um, someone's research. But I think some of the schools with fewer resources absolutely have to consider whether you're going to be extremely expensive and your research is going to require machinery that they can't afford and therefore they can't set you up to be successful. Mm. Um, stuff like mm -hmm. that. I mean, how is, for a lot of the schools, say like liberal arts colleges, it might be how... Um, your pedagogy fits with what the students need or what the um, particular specific needs of their specific students are. Um, and again, all of these things are just not things you can control during the interview or even much before the interview. They're, you're who you are, so you have to go there and be who you are and kind of let the um, these forces select you if you happen to be the right fit. So that's um, it's not the best piece of advice, but it's very, very, very true that you just have to be um, comfortable with that process. And I can't say that I ever was 100% comfortable with it. There was so much anxiety after each and every interview that I had and so much of getting yourself really excited and then really let down by a rejection, but you just have to anticipate that. And I think I, I can't say that I... Um, didn't experience it, but I got better at anticipating it and understanding that it was going to happen. This inevitable feeling of um, a little bit of anxiety and then a dread of rejection and then the rejection, and then you have to pick yourself back up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You sort of just develop these scar tissue that allows you to, exactly. to keep rolling forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like anything else um, in life. I you can't, you can't um, get rid of the fear, but you can kind of face it anyway. Mm -hmm. So Nadia, I was curious, and I realize that some of this might be um, very specific to your discipline, but don't let this stop you. Like, how did you continue or change your research agenda during this time of, of all the different postdocs, um, post-PhD, like, did you start changing, did you find that you started approaching like what type of projects you wanted to do or like how you're writing grants differently, um, how you're doing conferences any differently? Um, yeah, a little bit. I think that the postdoc, even though it was my specific path to a postdoc was a little bit non-traditional. And I think in, although it was stressful, it was kind of a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways, because during my process of really just knocking on doors and trying to find anybody who would be willing to work for, with me or willing to host me in their lab or willing to fund me. I met so many people and I had a lot of different collaborators. And I think that was really helpful for expanding the scope of my research in a few different ways. So I think that approach has been really great in a postdoc. I think now that I have a, a slightly more stable postdoc situation, it's been such a blessing to just be able to kind of sit and, um, focus solely on my research for a couple years. Um, I don't know how you felt in your postdoc, because I know your postdoc is purely research-oriented, which is not always mm -hmm. the case, right, in your field. Um, but I, mm -hmm. 
I feel really, really grateful for that opportunity. And I think that that's let me think a little bit deeper about what I study. So, um, and also just think about like ways in which what I study relates to all of what other people in my field are doing and try to think about um, new approaches, potentially riskier projects that I'm able to do just because I, like I said, I have a couple years, had a couple years, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that address your question? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Cause I guess I've had a sort of similar experience. Like I feel very lucky that I had a multi-year postdoc that allowed me to focus on research and that allowed me to be strategic because I decided to take the first year pretty much um, to work on on my publications, so articles and, and book reviews and things like that, which were things that I could then line up on my CV to possibly come out or at least be, say, forthcoming or under review by the time fall came roll, rolled around. Uh, and because it was a two-year postdoc, I then that allowed me to take distance from my dissertation project, which I'm working into a book project. Uh, and, it's, and it's allowed me to to take a lot of time to think about how to better situate my project into the scholarly discussion. It's sort of funny that we put so much work and so much anxiety into dissertation projects, but at the same time, despite our intelligence and all the research we put, per, nothing could really beat perspective. Hmm. Um, that like the dissertation is only going to be so good, but somehow you can't really do anything that will be similar to the just the ingredient of having time away from it that will allow you to see it differently and make it better in a way that you couldn't before, even though it's not like your abilities have necessarily changed. Yeah, um, that's so interesting. I feel really lucky in that regard that, yeah, so like I was able to do, do put things towards the short term as well as plant the seeds or continue to, to foster the things for my long-term project and thinking about my second project um, with the sort of, if the short term is about getting articles and other things out for my CV, uh, maybe my mid-tier thing about putting together my revision, doing my revision schedule for the book and plans on how to pr- approach publishers, for example. That being said, even if this sounds like work, I can say that it's, it's such a luxury because in my field, having a teaching postdoc is the norm, and all my friends are at least teaching three threes, if not four fours. And when I met up with them, when, um, all these friends in my cohort who are just as brilliant, just as hardworking as I am, and the sort of joke was when I was talking about my research, they're like, well, I remember when I used to be able to do research, <laughs> but now they have hundreds of essays to grade every week. <laughs> so and four fours meaning they're teaching. much more difficult. Four four would mean that they're teaching eight classes a year, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's like in, in some cases, I think. Yeah. Like the way that they also calculate, it's not just about the load per semester. It's also about the number of new preps you have to do. So right, right. Even if there's a 4-4, at least if like yeah, two of them are like the same class, like at least you only have to prep the lesson to, um, once, but still the amount of grading and everything, the amount of energy that takes. Um, yeah, for sure. Still takes its toll as well. Well, and so that's actually ways in which I think that the postdoc has been really good to me and I um, that makes me very nervous in starting a faculty job because you have that much more responsibility and a lot of it is going to be devoted to teaching and things that you're not at least immediately rewarded for. Um, maybe you are on some mm-hmm. level, but that's not the thing that you're being hired to do, right? Yeah. And so on that note, 
can you talk, would you like to talk a little bit about what sort of things you want to prepare to go into your position as a junior faculty member? Yeah. Um, like, so I what actually, sort of things do you want to line up before things begins? Yeah. So I've been writing Sorry. some of, some of this out, my, my one-year plan and five-year plan and shout out to Erica Osterman who kind of inspired this kind of <laughs> perspective ability, which just does not come that naturally Erica. to me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, she was actually a guest on the podcast as well, right? A couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so I sh should preface this by saying that the institution that I was hired at, um, this, is, this is the University of California at Irvine. Um, they were very kind to grant me a one-year deferral, which I think has in some institutions is totally common and totally the norm. And in others, that's completely unheard of. Um, I really didn't know how they would ap approach such a request, but they were really great about it. And I think that was um, really, really, really helpful for me <laughs> for a lot of different reasons, um, which I'll list. So now that I have a year to really think about how I want to prepare before my first tenure track faculty job, I have a really hard time understanding how people actually do this in three months when they're trying to move and trying to find an apartment and also just trying to wrap everything up. Mm -hmm. And most people don't have that year. And I just, I, I can't wrap my mind around how they actually end up managing it and doing it because even a year feels like a really short time. Um, and so in that year, I mean, one of the things I'd like to do is to do a little bit of teaching prep just so that I'm not so overwhelmed with preparing new classes when I first get there. So I can at least have some um, syllabi and some stuff prepared and ready. Um, I need to think about writing grants. So I'm trying to apply for funding, which is expected in my field and in the institution that I'm hired at, um, which is that you're going to eventually obtain your own funding and you're going to fund your lab, the equipment that you need, the students that are going to work with you, the conferences you're going to go to, all that stuff. Um, I have to think about setting up a lab, like actually designing a lab. There's you, you get like a set of rooms and you have to think about the layout of it and the equipment that you need in it and like the construction that you want on it, all that stuff. And you have to work with contractors. And again, wow, so all like interior design on top of everything else. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> stuff that I'm not I'm not like I don't have that skill set at all. <laughs> right. Um, and. Again, this is stuff that people usually do all in three months, and I have and I have a whole year to do it, and I still feel overwhelmed. Um, I have to think about hiring personnel. So the thing that I'm going to be trying to do is hire a lab manager who would be trying to set up the lab. And this is usually, um, again, someone who's supposed to handle the projects and set up all of the stuff that you need set up. Um, I have to do like really basic things like create a lab web page, create lab manuals and policies, like research all the equipment that I have to buy. And I haven't even gotten to this idea of wow. like wrapping up my postdoc projects and thinking about how I'm going to continue some of them there or how that's going to work, how I'm going to split my time. Um, and that's, I mean, that's like, like super, super immediate stuff, right? And then there's stuff that I really want to mm -hmm. do that's a little more fuzzy, but I think is really important. So this is stuff like considering how I'm going to mentor people or how I'm going to build a team or what kind of graduate students I would want to have, how big my lab should be, like what the hierarchy should be like, um, how I'd structure the graduate undergraduate like relationships. Um, and I'm realizing I'm listing mm -hmm. a bunch, um, but that's because there's it's literally all of these things I think you have to think about and you have to do as you enter your 
your first faculty job. Um, like how I'll build trust and work ethic, how you motivate students that need motivation, how you deal with conflict, mm-hmm. either within the department or among students or between yourself and students. And again, all of this isn't even like stuff like how do I, um, you know, think about where I'd like my research to go in the next five to 10 years and how am I going to deal with moving across the country away from my entire social network and all of that kind of stuff? And where will Mm -hmm. I live that will let, you know, both my husband and I feel comfortable and um, like find jobs that or have him find a job that he might want. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. And I'm just, I feel really like, intellectually excited about doing all of that because that's the reason why I think a lot of us enter the profession is that we want to do a lot of this stuff but it's a lot to do at once and so yeah (laughs) well it's thank you so much especially for getting into the details of what it means to set up a lab because again uh, of course we don't have labs in my field so the sheer number of things you have to take into consideration that you don't necessarily have any exposure to before that which as you said like what does it look to manage or hire people what does what is it like to design the layout of your lab yeah like, exactly it's going to impact things Exa- so much and suddenly I don't know like I couldn't help but think about how like Erica ran our team when uh, Nadia and I along with Liz worked in Hans Beta House at Cornell that are you have to be like Erica you have to be able <laughs> to figure out how to do the pep talks and manage like the, the hierarchy and know how to conduct meetings efficiently. Yes, exactly. And those of you who haven't met Erica Osterman um, don't know this, but those of you who have met Erica Osterman would know that most people, I think pretty much nobody except Erica Osterman can be Erica Osterman and doing all of these things and doing them so well. Mm -hmm. And so just the idea that I would even be like, have to do a portion of what she was doing and learn it all in a year is just insane to me. Um, And somehow... I'll have to do that, right? On top of like all these other things. Um, yeah, I, it's it, in some ways, I think we as faculty are kind of expected to run these like severely, severely understaffed businesses. <laughs> so you're starting uh-huh. up, you're uh-huh. basically starting up a center in which you're doing science and you have to consider the mission of your organization and the personnel that you want within it and how you're going to do it. But you're kind of a one man or one woman in this case job and it's uh, or operation. It's crazy. And also you have to pay for everything. You have to pay for these people. My God. Right. So you have to look for grants and you have to consider how much money you're going to have. And usually institutions um, in the social sciences and I'm pretty sure in the physical and biological sciences as well. In fact, I'm sure of this, they'll give you some startup money. So they're not going to expect you to have a grant when you first Mm -hmm. come in. So they give you some lump sum of money and they say, okay, we know it's going to take you a little while to actually start things up. And we know you're going to need to be doing research during this time. So we're giving you some amount to kind of tide you over. But that's only going to last so long. And in fact, some of these are are set to expire. Like you have... um, let's say two or three years to spend your startup money. And after that, it goes away and you have to have a grant. Otherwise you're kind of in the lurch. 
that's not always how it works and it's not the, how it's working for um, the institution I was hired at. So I actually have funds that don't expire, but nonetheless, they're limited funds, right? So you only have a certain amount and you have to mm-hmm. kind of make that stretch until you get your first big grant, which you're expected to get. Mm-hmm. And I guess like, again, thanks startup grants, of course, really brings into mind what's more well known in the popular conscious now of like the whole startup company and like sort of hoping that a venture capitalist will take pity on you. And what you're just sounding <laughs> describing sounds like the academic version of that in a way, like getting the tenure track job is such, such a huge um, leap in and of itself. And it's a wonderful success, but then like you have to sort of keep everything together and keep it running. And wow. Yeah. Like, have you ever done classes on things like the type of management you're talking about or like how you're going to have to manage finances and so forth? Oh, my God. Or hire no, people? Absolutely not. No, it's crazy to me, but I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> right. Like I'm, I'm actually I've been Googling like uh-huh. how you um, like how you build a team and what effective leadership is just to see if even there's maybe like a free online course about this, because I have zero experience doing anything of that caliber. I mean, I have people I mentor and I have a little bit of a structure in my postdoc where I have undergraduates who work with me, but it's nowhere near the size and magnitude that's expected of a PI who's trying to have an active lab with lots and lots of research going on and like hierarchies within hierarchies almost. Wow. When Nadia was talking, I was like making this like face of, of, oh my God. (laughs) Things that our listeners are missing out on because they can't see what we're up to right now. But yeah, I felt the need to describe that. I mean, in some ways, uh. it's it's exciting. Like I said, it's exciting stuff. It's just um, you kind of hope mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to figure it out as you get along, go along, um, because the repercussions if mm-hmm. you can't, of course, is that you don't get tenure or you can't move on to a different job, even if you. Um, fail to get tenure and like it, it's it's high stakes um perhaps not mm-hmm. as high stakes as having your own startup I don't know not that I want to be making that kind of direct comparison at least you have a guaranteed salary and at least um you're working within an institution that's in theory mm-hmm. supposed to be supporting you mm-hmm. sort of on a different note uh I remember that you mentioned that the department that you're hired, in, hired into is the cognitive science department, but your PhD wasn't in a cognitive science department per se. Would you like to talk a little bit about how your research fits into cognitive science, but also then what did it look like for you to apply to jobs that didn't have the same, weren't in the fields that had the exact same title as your PhD? Yeah, um, so my um, focus has been on cognitive development, so in some ways it wasn't too difficult to explain how it fit with basic human cognition. Um, It's just that I happened to study early Mm -hmm. childhood. um, And a lot of uh, people might not study early childhood, but it is a very, uh, I get the sense that it's a more interdisciplinary department than the one that I may have been used to uh, working in, the types of departments that I've been used to working in. Um, Which does mean that when people are evaluating you, you have to keep in mind that your audience, for example, may not be aware of some of like the same terms that your entire field is aware of. So when you're giving a job talk, you have to be extra aware of the department that you're giving the talk to. So even though maybe every developmentalist that I know knows this 
one specific term and exactly what it means and exactly the connotations of it, you can't make that same presumption when you're talking in a different type of department. Mm-hmm. And that's just something and you always because have I to believe you, your department at Cornell was uh, development psychology. Was it, it was the human development department, so it was also kind of interdisciplinary. But it oh, was okay, sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so also kind of interdisciplinary, but definitely um, the lab that I worked in was very much cognitive developmental. Um, and the departments that I've been part of since have largely been psychology departments. Um, so regarding applying to jobs that are not in your direct field, I think sometimes, um, so first of all, it's, it's obviously to your benefit to be able to apply to as many different types of jobs as possible, presuming that you actually would want those jobs and would be um, willing and interested in working with them to whatever extent you can figure that out in a job ad and often you can't. So to whatever extent, there's at least a chance that you would be interested and willing to work in that kind of job. Um, but I think the thing is that if you're applying to different types of departments, what is interesting and fundable research and uh, really, really varies across different types of departments. And so you might have to come up with lots of different ways of spinning the same stuff that you do and, mm-hmm. and applying okay. it and really trying to explain how it's relevant to the issues that that de- particular department cares about. So that process um, is definitely something where it really helps to have colleagues who are outside of your field or colleagues within different types of departments of the kind that you're trying to apply to just so that you can really um, make sure that what you're saying isn't going to fall on deaf ears basically in your research statement. And Mm -hmm. that the terminology you're using is going to come across the way that you think it's coming across. Um, And then after that, of course, if you get an an interview, and I've had this experience at a department that may not be of the discipline that you're coming from, you then have to figure out how to give your job talk. And they may have read your research statement and be expecting something totally, totally different because of this like mix and what you mean by the different ter- like how different fields basically use different terminologies and so you have this like strange experience where mm. they're expecting one thing of you and your research and you go there and you deliver something totally different and you both kind of have this uncomfortable jarring experience where you have to catch up and figure out oh yeah <laughs> um <laughs> yeah I mean the upshot is that that is obviously a learning opportunity, so you can use that to kind of figure out for the next round what these types of departments are like and what they might be looking for and how they're using different types of terms and things like that. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really interesting thing to bring up. Um, I definitely had a campus visit where that was the case where I, I had to gear my talk for a non-specialist audience, but then I, then I've had other ones where they were a specialist one. So trying to figure out the different ways to spin it or like, you never want to feel like, of course you want to be legible, but never sound like you're being simple, never never simplistic. Uh, And sort of, I feel like it's a very delicate balance to, to make. And especially sometimes, of course, in audiences, you're not just delivering it to faculty, but um, I've definitely heard examples of, say for a small liberal arts college, like, like it's possible that like undergrads would be in the audience. So how do you make sure that they are, can also be 
um, galvanized by your talk as well as a, a tenured faculty member. Yes, uh, yeah. you appeal to all these different audiences at once. Yeah, that issue of multiple audiences is on so many levels, right? So you could have different departments in the audience, but you could definitely also have um, senior faculty who would be in your field who might be um, really bored if you try to explain things at an undergraduate level and then undergraduates who would be really bored if you try to explain things in this really, really technical field specific level. And then all of them have to eventually vote on your, um, or at least input, maybe not vote, input on your um, potential candidacy. So um, it's an art, right? Mm -hmm. And there's like a certain art, like you're saying, where you have to be really, really clear, but you can't be so simplistic that people think that your research is obvious and that there isn't some kind of nuance and sophisticated technique that you're, um, only you can do, right? So there's like a certain art to that too, mm -hmm. like hitting that exact sweet spot, which... Again, I, I, having watched many job talks, um, just by sitting in on them, I think is something that you can just see candidates try to strike a balance of, of like not over explaining, but also um, making themselves extra, extra clear. Because if you don't make yourself clear, then even senior faculty will be bored and kind of tune out. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's mm -hmm. a lot to keep in mind. <laughs> All, of course, under the cognitive load of like having speaking in front of people and having to contain your nerves around the pressure of the job and all of that. Mm -hmm. Figuring out where strategically you'll be able to take your sip of water. So you can <laughs> do it in a way that's elegant and not have your mouth completely dry out but before the end of the page. Yes. Like, there's like all these small arts to these, these things. <laughs> I actually but, put um, in my... Hopefully you'll be... Um, for, yeah. I actually put in my PowerPoint slides. It's funny you brought that up. I put water break here um usually right after i share like what i think is a cool result i'll put forced water break right here and i'll take a sip of water <laughs> so that people have a few mm -hmm. seconds just to digest what i said because i tend to talk really fast when i get really nervous so i just want to make sure that i slow down during the important parts and i sip my water and that way i stay make sure i stay hydrated mm-hmm very practical and very savvy too. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody actually, this is not my technique. I think somebody taught me this. I know that like pedagogically, a friend of mine likes to talk about how in his case, the cup, cup of coffee is like such a useful pedagogical tool because like when you ask students a question, sometimes we don't wait long enough for them to think and respond because we're nervous about silence. So if you like hold your cup and you like drink or pretend you're drinking that like gives you something to do while you're waiting for them to <laughs> sort of process your question. Oh, I like that. I think I, I think I will so, use yes. that now. And if I teach a lecture course, I think I will definitely, yeah. definitely use that. Woohoo. The drink as um, unrecognized tool in <laughs> academia, I guess. Yeah. I guess you probably need like a big gulp, like a huge coffee cup just to make sure you're drinking mm -hmm. it for long enough. You're just like, you know, do just like just little sips or I don't know, you do what theater actors do when they have to pretend that they're drinking or eating on, on stage, but maybe can't always do it because then you'd be eating or drinking way too much. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or the other Sorry, thing. Sorry, that's sort of a silly thing. No, well, I was thinking the other thing, like these are just like low level presentation things. For example, I know that if I'm feeling really nervous, I shouldn't use like a, a laser pointer because you can see that my hand's shaking during the job talk. So, you know, you don't want to... Mm 
you don't want to do that. So if I'm feeling nervous, I won't use it. But if I'm, I'm feeling okay, then I'll use the laser pointer to kind of point stuff out in my slides or something like that. So there's like all these like low level kind of mm -hmm. things to keep in mind. Um, I'm trying to think if there's more tips I've acquired over the years. I think um, the other thing I've learned is to always, always like... Um, account for the fact that I talk a lot faster when I'm nervous so if they're expecting me to talk for an hour mm -hmm. I really need to prepare like an hour and 20 minutes of practiced material because I know when I get nervous I'll just mm -hmm. talk and it'll take up that hour for me my tip I guess it's a presentation tip in general make sure that you really slather on the deodorant at least yes for me. yes definitely nervous sweat so no joke <laughs> Yes, and bring an, bring an extra suit. You really never know. Um, don't mm -hmm. ever check your luggage, ever, <laughs> if you're flying. Oh, yes, nightmares. <laughs> yeah, master the, the carry-on packing. Yeah, um, I think these mm -hmm. are things that, like, people can Google as well, but, like, um, even just having – I always had, like – like, it's, like, so paranoid. I would have my talk on my desktop and then saved on a USB, saved on a Dropbox, saved in Google Drive, and emailed to myself. Because if any of those methods mm -hmm. fails, you just never know. You know, you never know. That actually happened to me. Um, my first year on the job market, my laptop crashed just, oh, like, no. a week or two before having to, to give presentations and also do interviews. But fortunately, I had backups. Thank goodness. Yes. But even then, like, like I don't, I don't know about you, but like, I feel like I don't organize my backups in quite the same way I do for my primary computer. So like, even the little disruption organization, uh, even though I was like very faithfully backing everything up, um, it just it did feel very disconcerting, and also psychologically, it didn't help. But yeah, much. yeah. I mean, it's definitely like a totally psychologically disorienting thing, and I've had this happen where your computer doesn't work or something's not working, like your clicker, any even small thing because you try to prepare so much. Um, so yeah, as much as you can like build in a little bit of error that hopefully won't ever happen to you, but just so you're not totally thrown off by it when it does is really, <laughs> is really good. And I think I remember my first couple years as a graduate student, I think um, I was just so incredibly technology issues prone. At every conference, inevitably, I would have some kind of technological issue that would inevitably delay my talk by at least 10 mm -hmm. minutes. Like something would happen. And I just kind of learned at that point that you can kind of turn it into an opportunity to seem kind of human and just be like, <laughs> this is what's happening and I'm going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, so now it's an opportunity, but back then, like, you're already so nervous. The last thing you need is some kind of technical issue just going haywire where you're blaming yourself in the middle of it, even though it's obviously not your fault. And yeah. Like I sharing anecdotes, I had a friend that I remember for her mock job talk, she had everything prepared. Uh, and then somehow I think the talk got erased. But so oh she tried God. to, she went ahead with like giving her talk and she still did, did well. And then she actually, she got a tenure track job and she has it now, but in a way it was sort of like, I know how nerve wracking it was for her in that, in that moment. Um, yeah. even though like this was a supportive audience that she called, brought together with her friends and her committee. But of course it was sort of fortunate insofar as like, she knew that like something, the, one of the worst possible things could happen and you can, she could still survive. 
So I think that um, I can't think of too many other things to hit on um, unless you can. But I was thinking that one thing that might be interesting for our listeners is to go again to your research. And do you want to give us any updates on some of the stuff you've done, some of the work you've done lately or other new avenues you're exploring in your research? Anything that's coming out that you're really excited about that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about my research because we're academics and that's kind of what we're paid to do. Um, so I have been really mm-hmm. interested in looking at the intersection of kids' um, young children's numerical abilities and their um, concepts of fairness and equality. So in particular, what I'm really interested in is how mm. even like basic ideas about what equality is and isn't and our abilities to kind of understand it and enact it in this world are really just dependent on this like basic thing of understanding how numbers and math work. Um, and so I have a bunch of studies mm. that I'm really excited about where I'm looking specifically at that and finding that a lot of um, the reason why we young children are getting better at fairness as they get older is because they're getting better at understanding how numbers work, which also means that when you see... Wow. When you see your child, you know, not behaving so fairly, it might not be because they're a jerk. It might actually be because they haven't yet acquired this, like, basic (laughs) cognitive capacity. So I'm super excited about that, and that's been actually the thing that I ended up writing my postdoc grant on um, and the thing that I presented a bunch on in my job talk and hopefully the thing I will continue doing in the years to come. Thank you so much, Nadia, for coming back to the podcast. Uh, it's been great to see how you're doing. Sadly, again, Liz couldn't be here for this, but then she's going to be able to listen to the interview and like catch up and then hopefully like actually catch up with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at some points. Thanks for uh, having me well, on. I'm, yeah. as you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of you and Liz in real life. So it's also nice to um, represent myself as not just a guest, but a fan of the podcast and of the real life design and Liz who are every bit as awesome as they are in on the podcast. <laughs> thank you thank you that's very kind of you Nadia so and if you feel like Nadia um, please make sure that you rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud with uh, Facebook Twitter all the different forms of social media don't hesitate to contact me uh, and Liz through any of those mediums our our email is phdavispodcast at gmail.com or you can send us a message through Twitter or a Facebook page um we're really lucky to have fantastic guests like Nadia and being able to follow up with a fantastic guest and see what the trajectory of their career has been is, I think, really beneficial for all of us at all different stages of our careers, regardless of discipline. So thank you. Thanks for having me on.